If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome on this second Sunday of Easter to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you pray with me? We wonder, Holy One, just how long it took for Jesus to decide what his first words to the disciples would be when he appeared to them after the resurrection. So much had happened since the last time they had talked. They had fallen asleep on him in the garden, even though he had begged them to stay awake and pray. They had scattered after Jesus was dragged off by the authorities. They provided no counter-protest when the crowd shouted, crucify him. One even denied knowing him, not once, not twice, but three times. They didn't come to his aid when the crown of thorns was brought out. Only the women had held vigil at the cross. And when Mary told the disciples that she had seen the Lord that morning, their next move was to lock themselves in a room and hide. If it had been us, we wouldn't have been on speaking terms with the disciples. But somehow Jesus manages to say, peace be with you. Peace, the catch-all word for calm, for comfort, for goodwill. After everything they had put him through, he says, peace be with you, twice. It almost sounds as if Jesus were Buddhist. I mean, it's not as if Christians are widely associated with peace. We're better known for waging culture wars, deciding who is the holiest, and being hashtag blessed. But we're reading this resurrection story again, Holy One, and paying attention to the seemingly little things, like how to greet one another, how to recover a relationship, how to extend grace, how not to shame someone, how to continue the conversation. Help us to cultivate peace in our own hearts, Holy One, so that we practice it, pray for it, and pay it forward. 
We pray in the name of our teacher, Jesus, who showed us how. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. For us, it's been an entire week since Jesus arose from the grave. But the lectionary moves a little more slowly. We read the first 18 verses of the 20th chapter of John last Sunday, Easter, and now we continue the story with verses 19 through 31. But it has not been an entire week in the text. For the disciples, it's the same day, resurrection day. Only now, it's in the evening. In other words, it's still Easter in the text. In fact, it's actually still Easter for us. Easter is a whole church season that lasts 50 days and ends with Pentecost, every pyromaniac's favorite church day. <laughs> Today, we pick the story up right back where we left off. But to jog your memory, verses 1 through 18 told us a series of stories of people coming to believe. And this happens in a couple of different ways. First, the laundry in the tomb. You remember the laundry. The linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, the text tells us. 
Jesus has left physical evidence of his presence or absence, and it has a pretty powerful effect. Verse 8 told us that when the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, he saw and believed. Believed what? John doesn't say, but the disciple believed. And then we have Mary Magdalene who stood outside the tomb weeping. She is so distraught that even the appearance of two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had been has no effect on her. It is not until Mary hears Jesus, who she has up until then assumed was the gardener, it is not until Mary hears Jesus say her name that she believes and goes to tell the disciples that she has seen the Lord. Which brings us to today's text. Apparently, the disciples have not taken Mary's declaration to heart. They have locked themselves inside a house. But then, Jesus came and stood. Coming and standing is the way of describing Jesus' resurrection experience to the disciples in John. The Gospel of John does not use appearance language like, he has been seen, as Paul does say in 1 Corinthians. Rather, John uses very physical terms. He came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Having just read Mary's experience, we might think that hearing Jesus' voice might be what it takes for the disciples to believe, but no. They need a little something else. So as the text says, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then, not before, then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. John really makes it a point to lift up Jesus showing the disciples his hands and his side. And this is to make sure that the audience knows that the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is the same guy as the crucified Jesus. It was implied before this, of course, but not proclaimed. The disciples knew what had happened to Jesus that had caused the wounds in his hands and his side. But let me remind us. Back in John chapter 19, we are told that to speed up death, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. Breaking the legs prevented those being crucified from pushing themselves up to get their breath, and it led to a swift suffocation. But Jesus was actually already dead at this point in the story, so they didn't need to break his legs. Instead, the text tells us, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Seeing these wounds are what it took for the disciples to recognize Jesus. It is at this point that we begin to see a progression of belief The beloved disciple saw piles of laundry and believed. Mary heard Jesus' voice and believed. Now the disciples see the hands and side of Jesus and then believe. The images become progressively more physical. The trend continues with Thomas, but for some reason, people start getting really cranky about this progression. I mean, bless Thomas's heart, 
He's like a victim of Donald Trump's fondness for giving ill-fitting and unfair nicknames to his enemies. Sleepy Joe, Crooked Hillary, Low Energy Jeb, Crying Chuck. I am aware there are more examples. As clever as Trump thinks he is at coming up with nicknames, the church really takes the cake when it comes to slander. Some people actually think that doubting is Thomas's first name <laughs> and that it's in scripture. He is most commonly or best known as Doubting Thomas, like those offered by Trump. This nickname is also ill-fitting and unfair. Thomas hasn't done anything differently than anyone else in the appearance stories, but he's the only one that gets shamed by everyone else. Thomas's response to the disciples' declaration, we have seen the Lord, has been painted as harsh and negative. But is it any wonder that Thomas doesn't believe them? After all, what are the disciples doing that would suggest anything of significance had happened to them? I mean, they claim to have been privy to an appearance by the Jesus Christ. But what has changed about their behavior? Nothing. They are still huddled up and hiding. No wonder Thomas has his doubts. Thomas not only had doubts, he also had some requirements for being convinced. Thomas not only wants to see the mark of the nails in Jesus' hands, he says he must put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side. Scholar and theologian Brandon Scott, many of whom you many of you will remember from our documentary American Heretics, Brandon Scott notes that the repetition of that phrase mark of the nails and the escalation from sticking in his finger to his whole hand created an exaggerated physical sense of the need for proof. And I do wonder at this point if the rest of the disciples hearing Thomas's requirements, borrowed a line from the TV show, Schitt's Creek, ooh, Thomas. <laughs> Regardless, Thomas is resolved. Unless this happens, he says, I will never believe. In the Greek, the wording emphasizes an emphatic negative in the future, so it's more like, Never, ever will I believe. And he's serious about it. The text tells us a week, a whole week goes by, and he's still waiting. In verse 26, the disciples are again in the house, although this time Thomas is with them. And again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. For his part, Jesus is not weirded out by Thomas's request to touch his wounds. He actually invites Thomas to do just that. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Now, some have interpreted verse 29 as Jesus throwing shade on Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. 
But note that Jesus does not censure Thomas for naming conditions, but instead makes available to him exactly what he needs. Note that Jesus does not shame Thomas. He never, not once, chastises him for wanting more proof. He does not call him doubting Thomas. Actually, Jesus does not use the word doubting at all. And I know our translation says, do not doubt, but believe. But the phrase is actually an aphoristic wordplay in Greek. And Brandon Scott suggests that the translation that uses the word doubt panders to a much later tradition. Rather, John's sense is more, be not faithless, but faithful. That line, be not faithless, but faithful, makes me wonder if Jesus is using the rhetorical device of overhearing to share a word with the rest of the disciples. Preacher Fred Craddock believed that this is why adults get so much out of children's sermons, because thinking that one is overhearing a conversation gives the general feeling of, well, this is for someone else, which causes people to drop their defenses, removes the threat that closes eye and ear, sets you free, and hence permits the word to come to you. Be not faithless, but faithful. And the disciples were, at this point, being pretty faithless. After all, Jesus had appeared to Mary, who told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, but they did not take her seriously. Instead, hid out in the house. So Jesus had had to appear to them but even in doing so, their behavior post-appearance by Jesus is so uninspiring that Thomas, one of their own, can't believe that they have actually seen the risen Christ, which means that Jesus had to come back. Back again. There are a few millennials here, thank you. Be not faithless, but faithful. Uncircle the wagons. Get out there and be faithful. Jesus had just spent three years with these guys, teaching them how to care for people, how to hold fast in the face of trouble, how to trust the power of love. And for what? For them to hang out in a locked house? And he hadn't just taught them to love your neighbor, feed the hungry, clothe the poor, and stand up for one another. He had dragged them all over the countryside doing those things, showing them that the kingdom of God did not just come by itself. It requires the hands and feet, the head and hearts of the faithful. This is how people come to believe that they are beloved by God. Be not faithless, but faithful. The sermon preaches itself. But I, I have a feeling that there are a few of you out there wondering about the last verse in this pericope. 
Doubting Thomas is not the only name-calling that we associate with this text. In the original ending of this gospel, verses 30 and 31, John gives us his purpose statement in which he calls Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh Uh-oh. Like, those are some words with baggage. And I sense some disturbance in the pews. For some, these phrases are difficult because of the negative associations that have been part of a fear-based Christianity that emphasizes our sinfulness, guilt, unworthiness, and the threat of hell. For others, the issue is puzzlement about Christian language about Jesus. Was he human? Was he divine? Was he a hybrid? These titles, Messiah, Son of God, they seem to suggest a very particular theology. We prefer the parts of the story when John says that so-and-so believes, but doesn't tell us what they believe. And here, it seems John is trying to get us to believe very specific things. But remember that these phrases have meaning within a Jewish context and the context within the Roman Empire. Theologian Marcus Borg explains, Messiah, which is commonly rendered in English as Christ, was distinctly Jewish. In a Jewish context, it referred to one anointed by God for a special role. In the Old Testament, it is sometimes used for the Jewish king. By the first century, it had acquired a narrower meaning within much of Judaism, referring to one promised and anointed by God to deliver the Jewish people from oppression and to bring in a new era on earth. There was, however, no unified messianic expectation among Jews in the time of Jesus. Some expected a warrior messiah. Some expected two messiahs, one a king and another a priest. And some thought that God would bring in the new era without an intermediary. But to call Jesus the Messiah, as his followers did, meant that they saw him as one anointed by God to be the deliverer. In a Jewish context, the meaning of son of God is shaped by the use of the phrase in the Old Testament. There, it is sometimes referring to Israel as a whole, sometimes to the kings, sometimes to heavenly beings. Closer to the time of Jesus, it is used to refer to Jewish holy men who were mystics and healers. What all of these uses have in common is that the term refers to somebody in an especially intimate relationship with God. In a Roman context, and recall that Jesus and his followers all lived within the Roman Empire, Son of God referred to the Roman emperor from Caesar Augustus, from Caesar Augustus on. The title appeared on coins and inscriptions throughout the empire. Moreover, according to Roman imperial theology, Augustus was the product of a divine conception conceived in the womb of his mother by the god Apollo. So when Jesus' followers spoke of Jesus as the Son of God, they were not only saying that he was intimately related to God, the Jewish meaning, 
but also directly challenging imperial theology's claim that Caesar was the son of God. These titles, Messiah and Son of God, when put in context, remind us that Jesus challenged both the domination systems of his homeland and the powers that ruled that world. They remind us in very particular ways that Jesus was someone who flipped tables, who stood between mobs and their targets, who offered a gentle word to turn away wrath, who offered free health care, who didn't shame people for their skepticism, but encouraged them to use their head and their heart. Someone who really did justice, really loved mercy, and really walked humbly. So, we could stay here in this room debating about whether or not we agree with these titles. We could stay here in this room and discuss whether or not we agree with the way the Gospel of John characterizes what happened. We could stay here in this room and fuss about the importance of distinguishing the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus. We could stay here in this room and tell people we're not those kinds of Christians, if you know what I mean. We could stay here in this room and do another book study on the historical Jesus. We could stay here in this room, worried that if we leave, we might mess it up, get it wrong, get in trouble. We could stay here in this room, or we could go feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those who are sick and in prison. We could stay here in this room or we can go out from this place because we know that the most important thing about Jesus is that he showed us what can be seen of God in a human life. We could stay here in this room, or we can show our neighbors how a human can embody what we believe to be is the character and passion of God, which is the pursuit of the well-being of all of us, and especially for the least of these. We could stay here in this room, or we can live out the hope of a transformed world, one of justice and nonviolence, one in which no one needs to be afraid. We could stay here in this room, or we can go out into the only world we know and do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. Be not faithless, but faithful. I'll see you out there. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m., with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.